0: I invite you to turn your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Just a few odds and ends as you're turning. Uh, If you like to take notes, uh, there's an option for you in your bulletin, uh, there's a handout for this morning's sermon. This morning's sermon is a bit unusual. We normally take one text and work our way through it. Uh, today we're going to take the book of Hebrews and uh, we're going to try to give you some introductory material that will help you as we begin this month-long study, uh, several months uh, in the book of Hebrews. Also, I uh, would encourage you, if you haven't ever seen one of these before, this is uh, uh, an ESV scripture journal on the book of Hebrews. Perhaps uh, you would purchase one of these, what it is. It's got uh, the Hebrews, uh, a chapter or a text of scripture on the left side and a blank page on the right side for you to take notes. That could be something uh, that you would do. And uh, even if you don't listen to sermons this way, this is, this is a way you can be reading your Bible throughout the course of the next several months. You could be reading through it, circling things, drawing out notes and Uh, The Bible is meant to take notes within it, and so you can do that on the the blank pages there. I'd encourage you to at least consider that. You can find that on Amazon, uh, you know, something like that, and uh, they're pretty inexpensive. So I would encourage you to consider that uh, as well. Well, the book of Hebrews is worthy of our closest attention, uh, because within this book, the author helps us face challenges and pressures that we will experience in life. About 2,000 years ago, an assembly of believers faced challenges because of their profession of Jesus Christ. The Roman authorities were cracking down on the followers of Jesus in their city. Professing believers were being publicly exposed, shamed Afflicted, beaten, imprisoned, and forced to surrender their homes and property. There was a seizure of their things. Still further, they endured these things, although they were only second-generation believers. That is, they had not seen Jesus Christ himself, but they heard the preaching and the teaching of those who had seen him. So the authorities in their city took significant measures to reduce their enthusiasm for a group that would claim to follow one that they had formerly crucified years before. To further complicate things, these, uh, the extended relatives of these believers, their parents, cousins, uncles, aunts, you know, extended relatives... We're not facing the same sort of pressure that they were. Their relatives were following an older, safer order called Judaism. And the authorities of their city weren't as interested in uh, attacking or persecuting followers of Judaism. So the pressures these believers faced were quite significant. As a matter of fact... Things were so dire that some of them were no longer attending the regular gathering together of believers. We read that in the book of Hebrews. And By no longer gathering with the believers, they were exposing themselves and were vulnerable to discouragement and the the attacks that Satan would wage against them. Remember in the gospel, Satan loves to snatch the seed. they were skipping out on the regular gatherings of the assembly and they also became dull of hearing so much so that they no longer wanted to hear more about jesus the one who had died and saved them in hebrews chapter 5 we see that as well although different factors i think are involved in every professing believer's life This basic storyline that I have given to you, which I think is just a synopsis of of the book of Hebrews, this storyline has repeated itself time and again throughout history. And so in the book of Hebrews, the author will push believers to embrace the only thing or the only person who can help them when they face stuff like is on the screen behind me. No believer can cope with these sort of challenges unless Christ fills their horizon. That's how one scholar described the theme of Hebrews. Christ must fill their horizon. Jesus must become greater than everything else or anything else that we would face in our life. So to consider how the author of Hebrews pushes or makes this point, I I want to consider some important introductory things with you this morning. There are three of them. If you've got your uh, handout, we'll go through these quickly. First of all, we look at the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews. I started, I I wanted to start with an easy one this morning, right? Uh, The author of Hebrews. Yeah. Now, if you think that I'm going to be able to solve this age-long debate about who the author of Hebrews is, I have some sorry news for you. Okay. Scores of people have been presented as possible authors for the book of Hebrews. Uh, I've given you a list of probably some of the most predominant views throughout the history of the interpretation of this book. People like Clement of Rome, Luke, Stephen, Barnabas, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, and Paul. Paul. Seems to me that the strongest case could probably be made for Apollos or Paul, okay? Um, However, conclusive knowledge of who the author is is probably not available to us today, okay? And uh, so we could explore reasons for and against all these authors, and I have had opportunities in teaching classes on Hebrews to do all of that, but I don't think we would gain much for it, and it would take us quite some time. So we're going to leave the book anonymous, knowing that God led some individual, maybe Apollos, maybe Paul, to write this book for the church. It is inspired and inerrant in its content, in the original manuscripts, and we are so thankful for it. A more profitable study for uh, our understanding of the book of Hebrews would involve the situation of the readers. To understand the situation of the original readers or hearers of the book, I want to look at three things with you. First of all, we look at the date of when this book was written. Several clues help us to affix a general time frame for when uh, the book of Hebrews was written. Uh, First of all, we know that there was a church father by the name of Clement in Rome who quoted extensively from the book of Hebrews, and he did that in 96 AD. So we know it was written before 96 AD. Another key is that the author, when he's describing the sacrifices, if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see there's a lot about sacrifices in this book. When he describes the sacrifices in the book of Hebrews, uh, he does so by using present tense verbs. Which likely means that he thinks or, or believes that those sacrifices are still occurring in the temple okay? Now the temple was destroyed in 70 AD And so that leads many conservative scholars to say Hebrews must have been written before the destruction of the temple and those sacrifices in AD 70 There's one other clue, you're in Hebrews 13 Look with me down at verse 23, near the end of this letter, Hebrews 13:23. "The author, whoever he is, says, "You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon." So the author describes the imprisonment of Timothy. This is. Uh, the Timothy, I believe, that traveled with the Apostle Paul in apostolic ministries. And so the third clue about the date of this book is it speaks of the imprisonment of Timothy, and an imprisonment for Timothy likely occurs in the 50s or 60s AD. There are other clues we could get into, some some more uh, minor clues that would push us toward the end of that range. I would say that the most likely date for the authorship of, or for the Origins of Hebrew would be the late 60s A.D., the late 60s A.D., just before the destruction of the temple. But moving along, I want us to also consider the situation of the readers and their identity. As far as the group that the author was originally addressing in this book, we know that they were probably Jewish people, or at least former proponents of Judaism. Judaism. The book itself is entitled To the Hebrews, okay, To the Hebrews, the Jewish people, and that title comes very early on. It's not inspired, but it is an early attestation to who the audience might be. The author also expects his readers to be very familiar with the Old Testament Scripture and all the sacrifices, and he assumes a knowledge, and so um, I think that it's very likely that they were Jewish people. But more important than their ethnicity is the clear indication that the audience that he is addressing, that they are Christians. They're Christians. Um, All throughout, he refers to them as brothers or brothers and sisters in the Lord. Then think of this verse. Uh, Look look at chapter 10, verse 19, and we, we consider their identity. Chapter 10 and verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay. So I say, who can have confidence to enter holy places through the blood of Jesus? It must be followers of Jesus Christ, believers. So this is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ. No doubt I believe there were some who were only professing him. Without being truly followers of his, but they were at least claiming to be followers of Jesus. So, my final answer here is the first readers of Hebrew, Hebrews were predominantly Jewish professing believers in Jesus Christ. And, men and women, that's a very important point that we will refer to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. I think that the audience that the author of Hebrews is first addressing were primarily Jewish professing believers in Jesus Christ. That leads to one last study about the situation of these authors, of these readers, and that would be the location. Where are they? Where are they? Well, regarding their location, there have been all sorts of different proposals over the years. Some people say they're in Spain, others in the provinces of Galatia. Some say they're in the city of Jerusalem itself. I think it's impossible to be dogmatic on this because there aren't many clues. Actually, there's one clue in your Bible, and I want you to look with me. Look at Hebrews 13 again, verse 24. Where are they? Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. There's a location. It's one of the only locations we see in the whole book. Those who come from Italy send your greetings. And so it's likely that either the author or his readers are from Rome, the city of Rome, leading city of Italy. Now, when I compare this passage to another passage, it has a very similar construction with from Italy. It seems most likely that these readers are living in Rome. And when the author writes this book, he's got some people from Rome with him, and those people want to send greetings back to their brothers and sisters in the city of Rome. So to conclude this whole section, the readers of Hebrew, Hebrews, uh, original readers, are an assembly of professing believers in Rome, I think. Some of whom are tempted to return to Judaism for the physical safety that it would afford them. Like some of their extended relatives who are still in Judaism. That leads us to our last study, the aim of Hebrews. The aim of Hebrews. And this is where we'll really start interacting more with the book. I want to first consider the contents of this book, and I'll uh, describe them in certain ways to you. As we turn our attention to the aim of the book, we see the contents. And here the book of Hebrews, one of the first qualities I'll point out about this book is it frequently uses the Old Testament Scripture. Okay, the book of Hebrews is a New Testament book near the end of the New Testament canon. And one of the things that makes it distinct is that it is frequently quoting from and citing the Old Testament. Its frequent use of the Old Testament comes through both quotation and allusion and I think there are very few rivals. One, one author described it this way. He said, no New Testament book with perhaps the exception of Revelation presents a discourse so permeated, so crafted both at the macro and micro levels by various uses to which the older covenant texts, the Old Testament, are put and his appropriation of the text is radically different from the book's apocalyptic cousin. Okay. Apocalyptic cousin, what's that? Revelation. This author, who is a, you know, a scholar on the book of Hebrews, he says no other book uses it at the micro and macro level as much as the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. According to my count, and I counted them up this week, there are 41 quotations of the Old Testament Scripture found in these 13 chapters. And there are countless numbers of allusions not direct quotations, but allusions back to the Old Testament. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, you know that chapter, the Hall of Faith chapter, you know, where he's just going through by faith, by faith, by faith. I counted more than 70 allusions to the Old Testament just in that one chapter. So the point I want to make here is that the author of Hebrews uses the Old Testament very frequently in this message that he has given to his original readers and to us. And so, in order to appreciate the message of Hebrews more, we need to take a quick glance at the storyline of Scripture. And once we do that, we'll consider what the author of Hebrews says about how Jesus fits and how his book fits within the storyline of Scripture. Uh, And so, for about five minutes here, I want to walk through your Old Testament Scripture, and I just want to paint the storyline of Scripture. Now, there are all kinds of different ways you could do this. How, how would you tell the story of the Old Testament Bible? The way I'm going to do it is I want to see a, uh, a groups or uh, some cycles that are repeated. There are two things, I think, that repeatedly happen throughout the Old Testament. And uh, th- th- where you'll see that the original audience goes from a point of blessing to failure. Okay, And so what you're going to see in these six cycles are blessing and then failure, blessing, failure, blessing, failure. And time and time again, of course, this starts in the very beginning of your Bibles with the book of Genesis, where you see the blessing of creation. The story of Scripture starts with God's creation of heaven and earth and all of creation in six days. He creates man as his crowning accomplishment and forms woman as a helpmeet and companion and then determines that everything is good. At the crowning virtue of creation, the creation of humanity is very good. But the perfect creation doesn't last very long. As Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden fruit and plunge all of creation into futility, destruction, judgment, and death. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and then eventually things get really bad for humanity. So bad that the text says, Genesis 6, 5 and 6, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So because of the fall of man, God sends a worldwide flood to judge the inhabitants of the earth. So, first cycle, creation and fall. And in the flood. But, but, in the punishment of the flood, there was a blessing. The second cycle of, of, uh, blessing and failure I would see as being covenant and babble, Tower Babel, Tower Babel. The punishment of the flood, there was a blessing. This blessing is that, uh, and I'll quote here Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah and his family, for no merit of their own, were delivered by God through an ark and enjoyed a new beginning. Then God establishes a covenant with Noah, pledging to preserve the world until he would accomplish redemption for humanity. Genesis 6 through 9. And this, of course, is all symbolized in uh, a sign Right, the rainbow, sign of God's covenant to Noah that one day he will redeem the world. He will send a redeemer. Still, the story of the Tower of Babel that occurs in Genesis chapter 11 reveals that human beings hadn't changed very much. They were still inclined toward evil and lived to make a name for themselves instead of living for the glory of the name of God. And so he disperses them at the Tower of Babel and judges them there. That leads to a third cycle of blessing and failure and that is another covenant that God makes followed by slavery. At Babel, the world is judged again and things don't look good for humanity. But God, you could do that at the beginning of every one of these blessings. But God is intervenes again, and he makes three promises to a man by the name of Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Matter of fact, in your Bibles, why don't you turn there for a moment. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God intervenes just after the judgment of the Tower of Babel, and he makes a promise to Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Actually, within these verses are three promises, and I will try to highlight them for you. Okay, three promises. Genesis chapter 12, verse one. So now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in, and in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. If you're underlining your Bible, you might consider underlining these three promises. First, he, gives, he says, I'm going to give you the land. God promises to Abraham both here and in other places in Genesis that he is going to give him a land for his descendants to dwell in. That's promise number one. Number two, I'm going to make of you a great people or a great nation. From your descendants, Abraham, you, you will have a great people great number of people. And then number three, the third promise is, and in you, near the very end of verse three, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so although humanity had failed again at Babel and uh, they wanted to make a name for themselves, here God says, I am going to make a great name for you and all families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. Well, that, of course, is blessing from the hand of God. This is the Abrahamic covenant, where God covenants himself to Abraham. And and so with these promises, the descendants of Abraham are bound to succeed, right? Like, this is going to go well from this point on, right? Well, no. It doesn't take them many generations at all. And you could read about this throughout the, 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 the second half of Genesis, from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, to see them come to another low point. And the book of Genesis has them going down to Egypt and eventually finding themselves far away from the promised land, the fulfillment of these promises, and enslaved to the Egyptians. So That's why I call this third cycle, covenant and slavery. Now they're enslaved. That leads to a fourth cycle, covenant and death. Here the covenant is with Moses. Here God intervenes again and delivers them from Egypt, from Pharaoh, and promises blessing on those who will obey his stipulations. And promises curse on those who disobey uh, the covenant that he makes with Moses. Here God established a new system for those who would be his followers. A system that you could read about in the book of Leviticus. the book of Leviticus, it tells of a priesthood that would be established, the descendants of Aaron, and sacrifices that would be offered continually in the tabernacle and soon to be in the temple. He establishes the, the priests and the sacrifices of the old covenant, the covenant of Moses. Armed with all of these new promises and this new system in the wilderness, you would think that the children of Israel would now get the promised land and the blessings promised to Abraham would become theirs but instead they failed to believe that god can defeat the inhabitants of the land you remember this i hope hopefully our former series in the book of numbers is now beginning to make sense and paul's series in genesis is making sense think they'll get into the land but they fail to believe that god can do it and they begin to complain about all of the giant obstacles right in their way so God decides to wipe them out. Wipe out this generation in the wilderness. And so I call this cycle covenant and death. That leads to cycle five, inheritance and judges. Inheritance and judges. Instead of starting over with the sons of Moses, God sentences only the first generation, the Israelites, and promises that their children, the second generation, will indeed inherit the promised land. And so the book of Joshua tells a story of Joshua leading them in a series of campaigns, the second generation, into the promised land, both northern and southern campaigns, and they finally get it, and Joshua brings to them rest and peace in the promised land. That's when, in your Old Testament scriptures, you run into the book of Judges, book of Judges. I liked how one scholar described this. I'll just read his. It's Thomas Schreiner describing the judges here. He says, upon, upon opening judges, we might think that paradise is just around the corner. Two elements of the promise to Abraham are fulfilled. One, Israel had a large uh, population. And two, they now inherited the land of promise. Hundreds of years had passed since a promise was made to Abraham, but Israel now seemed to be on the cusp of blessing." He continues, it is rather stunning to see where the story goes next. Instead of moving forward, Israel, and I'll summarize what he says here, Israel fails repeatedly, and every man does that which is right in their own eyes. As the book of Judges says in Judges chapter 21. Here they fail again. There's no good leadership, no extended commitment to praise God, and they fall again again in the judges this leads to our sixth cycle the last cycle that we'll consider before jesus christ as you're telling the story of the old testament scripture i call this cycle kings and exile or blessing and judgment again when the book of first samuel opens in your bible the children of israel are heading toward terrible consequences they disobeyed under the judges there perhaps a collapse uh, looming but then god intervenes and he sends a man by the name of samuel the prophet, to anoint a king for Israel, King Saul. With such clear direction from God and provision from God, perhaps now the blessing that was promised to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed would be fulfilled. But again, it's not through King Saul or David who follows him or Solomon. They all repeatedly fall. Amid their failures, however, God does promise a perpetual kingdom through David's seed in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we don't have the time to turn there and look at the Davidic covenant. But in that covenant, God promises that there will be a future son of David who will come and who will will have the might to deliver Israel. While there's initial promise for David's wise son Solomon you're so reading your Bible, you think this might be the one. Solomon eventually falls into immorality. He fails to trust God and he sails out to idolatry. After Solomon reigns, or uh, after his reign, the kingdom is then split up, never becomes what it was. The northern kingdom fall, gives into wholesale idolatry and is judged by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom holds out longer. They finally relent as well into full-blown idolatry and they fall to Babylon in 586 B.C. And although the prophets of the Old Testament were continually warning of judgment and exile if the people of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, would not repent, the people do not repent and they're sent away into exile, far away from the land. So as I tell the story of the Old Testament Scripture, I use these contrasts, blessing failure, blessing failure, blessing failure over and over again. At this point, when they're exiled away from Israel and Babylon, one wonders, one wonders, what future son of David might possibly have the ability to deliver this wicked people and men and women. That's when you turn the page in your Bible to the New Testament, and you find what I would call the pinnacle of the revelation of Scripture, Jesus. Jesus, the one who brings the inauguration and fulfillment of a covenant called the New Covenant. For you see, back in the prophets, the prophets not only spoke of impending judgment, they also spoke of a time that God would come and deliver his people and set up a new covenant. In particular, I'm thinking of the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who promised a new covenant. They told Israel that one day, the Spirit of God would be given to every uh, believer, follower of Jesus Christ, that the law would be written on their hearts and everyone would know God. And so after several hundred years, God moves to fulfill this new covenant promise by sending His Son, His very Son, Jesus Christ. Now, instead of this Son, Being exalted and worshiped, he is rejected and crucified by humanity. But men and women, three days later, the Spirit of God gives life to Christ and he overcomes sin and death making salvation possible to any person. Christ then forms not only the basis of the fulfillment of the new covenant, it's through Jesus Christ that that last promise to Abraham that in you all families of the earth will be blessed finds its fulfillment. For in Jesus Christ now, any person, regardless of ethnicity or background, can be saved and delivered by the Son of God. Now, having worked through the beginning of this story in the Old Testament, it's now important to see what the author of Hebrews says about the role that Christ plays in it. Okay, And I'm just going to summarize to you some of the chapters here. The author of Hebrews starts this way in chapter 1 of your Bibles. He says, Jesus is better than the angels. The son of God that he said he's better than the angels. He has a uh, loftier position and name than angelic beings. Then you you go to chapter two in your Bible and you find that the revelation that comes from this son of God is superior to what the prophets even revealed in the Old Testament. was one and two. And the salvation that this this one offers, the son of God, uh, is a salvation that we must not, neglect or forsake then you go to chapter 3 in your bibles and you find out that this jesus according to the author of hebrews is better than moses the faithful servant of god you know the one that god made a covenant to or through for the people of israel the mosaic covenant we find out that this man jesus christ is greater than moses and then in chapter 4 of hebrews we find out that the rest that this one provides is superior It is superior to the rest that even Joshua was able to accomplish for the people. They wanted the promise, so they finally get in. Joshua's a hero. He gives them rest. But the author of Hebrews says there's one who provides a greater rest than Joshua. Son of God, I think, describing the rest of heaven learn throughout the rest of the book that Christ's priesthood is better than the one that was instituted by Moses described in the book of Leviticus. His sacrifice is so much better. We read about that today, right in the scripture reading. It's so much better than the blood of bulls and goats, that sacrificial system of the old covenant. If the blood of bulls and goats cleansed our consciences, I love how Hebrews 9 says it, how much more will the blood of Christ Cleanse our conscience. So, what the author of Hebrews does, he just keeps going one after another. He lines up things, people, or institutions, objects right next to Christ, and he just says, uh, in every comparison, you know what? Okay, you got the tabernacle and you got Jesus. Jesus is better. You got the priesthood and you got Jesus. Jesus is better. You got the sacrifice and you got Jesus. Jesus is better. It goes on and on. You know, I was reading through Hebrews this week. I thought, you know, he could have just said Jesus is best. It'd be a lot shorter book. <laughs> Jesus is best, but he does not use the superlative best. He uses a comparison. He likes the comparative. Jesus is better. The author of Hebrews likes to line up things, people, institutions next to Jesus, so that he can just say Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So as we go through this book, we're going to follow his line of thinking. Jesus is always better. So, all of the old covenant, those things are foreshadowing and anticipation, but Jesus is the substance and and the fulfillment. So, these readers just can't go back. You can't go back to an inferior and conditional covenant and priesthood and tabernacle and sacrifices. It no longer offers hope. Jesus is better. But there's more that we can explore here, and I want to go quickly through this. There's more we can explore. Specifically, how does the author make this point? How does he arrange his materials? And this is where we get into the nature of the book, the nature of the literature, or its genre. There's one verse I want you to see. I think there are two clues about its genre, and they're both in the same verse. So look at Hebrews 13 again. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. The author of Hebrews says, I appeal to you, brothers. And we'll look at these next two phrases. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Let's start with the end. The author says he's written to them briefly. The word written is the word epistela. From the word epistello, it might sound like our English epistle, because it comes from that root, epistle. This could be translated, I have instructed you by a letter. This means that the nature of Hebrews is fundamentally an epistle. It's a letter, like Paul's letters. It's an epistle or a letter. He says, I've written to you. Instructed you by letter. However, just before that is another expression that I think helps us understand Hebrews. And to me, when I saw this years ago, I think it just helped me understand the book and how, how it fits together and how it works. The author calls this also a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation. Now, I'm officially just a little beyond my time, so we're not going to go to Acts, but I'll just say you could write down the phrase word of exhortation and you can compare it in your Bible sometimes to Acts 13 and verse 15 the only other time this phrase is used. In Acts 13 verse 15, Paul the apostle is in Antioch and he gives a word of exhortation to the people in Antioch that they must pursue Jesus Christ. Now what Paul does in Antioch there though is he does not sit down and write a letter, but Paul preaches a sermon. He gives a homily, an oral report, and so uh, I, I think it's likely that Hebrews also bears the mark of a sermon or of a homily. Perhaps Hebrews was originally a sermon preached by preacher that was later transcribed or written out into a letter. One of the reasons we go through the book of Hebrews and we study it closely and it seems so fascinating to us is it just seems to really pull at us, right? It pulls at us concerning the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I think one of the reasons that's the case is that this was originally a sermon meant to convince people that they must believe in Jesus Christ and not go back to their former lifestyle. That leads us to the structure of Hebrews and there's a lot I can say here and in a second, I, I've given you the whole structure in your notes. Uh, matter of fact, I'll just show you this. Don't, don't get too concerned. This is what we're going to do for the next several months. We're going to look at this book together. Okay. The one thing i point out is I think there are five sections of this book. By the way, I love the structure of Hebrews and how it's laid out. The structures always go like this. There is Doctrine and then a warning. So five sections. Doctrine, warning. Or uh, doctrine, and then an admonition. And so the, the, the book of Hebrews is much like a sermon. We see from the author of Hebrews that he really believes in the power and sufficiency of the text of Scripture for uses, and he reinforces his doctrine with Scripture all throughout those sections, and then he'll warn them to warn them not to go back so the structure revolves around five warning passages each warning is introduced by a lengthy doctrinal section the doctrine always prepares the way for the admonition the writer is like a good preacher who establishes his views with scriptures and then presses his readers for a change all ends then in number 6 there a grand conclusion where he presses them for to to fidelity and commitment to Jesus Christ. That leads one last study for us, and that is the purpose of this book. What led the author of Hebrews to do all this? What drove him to deliver this homily or compose this letter? It seems to me that the predominant message of the book of Hebrews is clear. Jesus is better, so don't walk away from him. His revelation is better. His priesthood is better. His sacrifice is better. So, don't go back to Judaism. You feel pressure and threatening persecution. And it is harder for you because of Christ and your profession of him. But don't give up. Don't go back. I'd like to close with an illustration. Have you ever been interested in something before only to see your interests drop off? I told the story once before. When I was younger, I loved to collect baseball cards. I mean, I was really into it. For years, I would scrap and save all of my money to buy just one more card. I, think I had addiction problems. I could tell you the statistics on the back of those cards. I could tell you at any time the current value of each one of them. I remember going to the store and spending hours upon hours for years, looking at portions of years, uh, looking through glass display cases to see and to plot about how I was going to spend my money. Perhaps you had a collection when you were a child. Do you still collect them? Right now? For me, I I can't tell you what happened. I can't tell you when it happened, but one day I just quit collecting. Right now, those cards and those boxes are somewhere. I think my son Andrew might be able to tell you where they are. I'm not even sure where they are. One day, I drifted away from them. They lost all of their appeal to me. And I gave it up. Well, the author of Hebrews is concerned that this might happen to some of its readers in their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's afraid that they might walk away. Perhaps you know people who used to profess Christ, but now they have no desire for him. They've skipped the regular gathering together of believers. They're dull of hearing when it comes to hearing anything about Jesus. In my own extended family, I think I can point to people who fit that description. Perhaps you are here today, and you're close to giving it all up. You're not sure why or how you're even here. But by God's grace, you are. To you, I would say, man or woman, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't go back to whatever you used to pursue. Jesus Christ is better. Once you see that today, once you confess that again today, it's my prayer that God will use this series to show us all repeatedly that Jesus is better than anything else you line up next to Him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the book of Hebrews. I thank You for how it fits the storyline of Scripture. I thank, I'm thankful for how You led this preacher this writer, to compose a sermon or a letter that would push his readers, hearers, to the point where they would see that Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of revelation. In him, the new covenant has been fulfilled. In him, all the blessings of Abraham are fulfilled. Lord, we just pray for anyone here today who is burdened down by the pressures of life. Perhaps it's not for them persecution, but perhaps it's for them uh, some sinful passion that would pull them away, some desire with their life, other purpose or plan. Lord, may they see that all of that is fleeting. Whatever their heart craves and longs for, if they would just... Place it next to Jesus. They would see that he is always better. I pray for some of our own membership, perhaps, who are on the brink, on the edge. They professed Jesus before, but now they're thinking of walking away. Lord, I pray that you'd work in their heart, that you would use us as a body to encourage them with Scripture. Not to give in. Not to walk away, but to trust Jesus. We pray that you do this. In Jesus' name, amen.